You're listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Jared Staney. Jared is a respected leader and veteran of local broadcast radio, as well as being an entrepreneur, having created a music research company. Jared, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about how a college golf star and long-distance runner utilize an athlete's persistence to advance his career, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? I think a great day to start at least today with this podcast. Ah, well, that's good. Do you start with coffee though or anything? I do morning? start with coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Have it black with my beautiful wife. Well, that's a good way to start. I've got a cup at home that Susie gave me and it's a Johnny Cash quote. And it says, what is your definition of paradise? Having coffee with her in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I'm sure you put it out. So she sees the logo I, out there. Too. I use it all the time. And matter of fact, she sets it out for me every day and says, you're darn right, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Count your blessings. Yeah. Well, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. We've gotten to know each other over the last decade or so because we're industry veterans, you on the radio side and me on the TV side. But you've had a pretty interesting career. And that's what I want to talk about um, because you didn't grow up and say, hey, I want to get into radio, did you? Well, I, no, because I didn't realize it was a career in radio. <laughs> but I have to tell you that one of the reasons I am in radio is because to this day, God bless my beautiful wife, I cannot go to sleep without a radio on. And it's been that way ever since I was a kid. And so radio has always been a part of my life. And when I graduated, I sold computers for Burroughs Corporation and I heard about the national radio side and was like, ding, this is it. I can probably go to sleep in the office because it's radio. <laughs> it didn't work that way, but. Go back to growing up and you need a radio station now to go to sleep. What were you listening to as a kid? That Well, actually, really you know, grabbed- I'd listen to music. And at that time, it was a country music, quite frankly, which is kind of bizarre. In Detroit. Yeah, in Detroit. Where Motown is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Motown came in later, not until, you know, late to uh, mid-60s. So, you know, I really didn't have a choice. There weren't that much music or WJR would have uh, some really interesting shows. There's one guy, although I didn't listen to us at night, but I would during the daytime. And there's a guy named Dr. Carl Haas. To show you how radio has changed, this is a guy who would come on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon for a one-hour show. And Dr. Carl Haas was a music professor at the University of Detroit. And he would talk about classical music. And he'd go, okay, now, if Chopin played this piece, he would do it this way and have a piano there, and he'd play on the radio. It was just like him talking about classical music, and it was a great show. Yeah, you don't get that out of radio anymore, as we were talking earlier about broadcasting. And I want to talk more about that, but I want to first talk about your progression. So you got the radio bug by being a listener. And and, and I can identify with that because as a kid growing up, radio is my first love. So you grew up in Detroit. How do you end up? In New Mexico. Well, I was fortunate enough to have found a, a thing I really loved a lot at that time, still do. But my dad um, was a professional tennis player, and World War II broke out, so he went to the war, came back, and he never really played tennis, you know, to that level again. He just played competitively in the area. So my sister and I would go out every weekend when the weather was okay, and we'd either hit against the wall or we'd play tennis. But we had to be proficient before we could play tennis on the tennis court. So we spent hours hitting on a wall, hitting, hitting, hitting. 
my dad's theory was the wall's never going to miss. So you better be good. <laughs> so That's a great theory. It was a great theory. So, you know, I did that for years and played baseball. And then, uh, as you probably know, when you grew up in Detroit area, in the wintertime, either you ski or you play hockey. Hockey was right around the corner, so we all played hockey. And as the weather started to change, everything gets slushy. You can't play on the ice anymore. And my dad had golf clubs in the garage. And so I went in the golf bag just on a whim, grabbed a couple of golf balls, grabbed a junior five iron. I'll never forget that. I still have that club. And went out to the uh, park to go hit over the ice pond. And I thought, God, this is really cool. I can hit over the ice pond. It's, it's a challenge. <laughs> so that's how I started playing golf. And I played a lot and played baseball and then gravitated to, to golf. And my parents one year bought me a membership at a, at a semi-public golf course. And my dad said, okay, if you're going to play golf, you're going to play golf. So every day when I didn't have school, I'd be dropped off in the morning at like 7 o'clock, 7.30 on his way to work. And he'd pick me up when it was dark. So I played every day, sun up to sundown. And at first I was by myself and I'd just play all day. I'd play with other, you know, older guys at the time, or I just they had a big shag area to go out and shag. You can bring your own balls and shag. So I did that. And a little bit of a different era for us. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, eventually there were four other guys that came on the course that were daily regulars too. And of us, three of us got scholarships to play golf for college. And the way I went to New Mexico was that I thought, you know what? I don't want to stay in cold weather anymore. <laughs> I'm done with it. So I had my golf coach. I gave him a list of schools I wanted to go to. Never been to Arizona. Never been to New Mexico in my life. But I thought, God, it'd be cool to go there. So I gave him a list of schools, the golf coaches, and he wrote letters to all of them. And I said, the first one to respond, I'll go to. And it was Eastern New Mexico University. Uh, in beautiful Portales, New Mexico. And where is that? It is, if you were to take Amarillo and, and uh, Lubbock and take the center point between those, it just goes straight across to New Mexico. It's about 30 miles off the border of Texas mm -hmm. into New Mexico. And Is it mountainous? No, not there. It's the end of the plains. Uh, and the mountains really start in Albuquerque. Okay. That's where the Rockies start, actually. The funny part was is where they had flown a series of athletes coming in from the East Coast to Dallas, and then you flew from Dallas to Clovis, New Mexico, which is about 20 miles away from Portales. And we all land on, we're on the same plane, DC-3. We're talking 1969. Yeah. So they, they were only up ago. to three at that point. <laughs> Glad they had a three. The DC-1s were horrible. But um, so we land in Clovis to go to school. And as we're driving in, there's these big structures there. And so I'm thinking, like, this is really cool. It's a big city, right? So I get into my room. The first year I had to have a roommate. So I get in the room and he's from Albuquerque. And he said, uh, so what do you want to do? And I said, God, I'd love to see downtown. It looks like those big buildings down there. So he starts laughing. So he gets me in his car and we drive downtown. Those big buildings are grain elevators. Oh, wow. Which I didn't friggin' know because it's night, right? These are all lit up and everything. And it's like, oh, this is going to be nuts. So the kid from the happening city of Detroit goes into the middle of nowhere. In the middle of friggin' nowhere. Yeah. You played a lot of sports growing up. What did playing sports teach you that benefited you in your career? I think uh, one, concentration, perseverance. And I think above all of that might be creativity. Because it didn't matter what sports you played, you had to figure out a way 
to become better and to circumvent whatever that challenge was, whether it's a hit at you, a fly ball, whether it's a, a you know different kind of green you're facing or a different kind of shot. There's all challenges that exist there. And, you know, minute things like if you're the your second round going down a race uh, skiing, it tends to get a little more icy. So you always had at least two rounds that you're going down the track. And, you know, all of a sudden you start going through a slalom. You know how tight those gates are. Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, you see my television. And all of a sudden, things are a little more icy, and the snow starts to build up on one side, and you get your ski caught in the wrong place. And it, so you have to always be creative. That's an interesting response. And it's because it's not one I think of when people talk about sports, they, they talk about persistence and training, mm-hmm. which you mentioned those. But I like the creativity because you're being dealt with situations that you really have to have a spur of the moment reaction yep. to. And as you know, playing golf, I mean, it, <laughs> the same golf course the next day whole different situation. And that's the beauty of golf. It's the same course, but you're facing different options yeah. and obstacles. So you're at New Mexico, you graduate, and what are you going to do? Well, actually, I was in student government. I was a student attorney, believe it or not, and I did that for... And what does that mean? That means that it was a paid position, which is great. I had scholarship and I'm getting paid to do this position. It was wonderful. Um, 15 bucks a month. Wow. Pretty big money back then. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, student attorney. And I had a, a job offer to become a lobbyist for the city of Albuquerque. Guy who was the president of the student body. And, you know, I served underneath him as student attorney. And uh, he had gone over there and he said, God, you'd be great as a lobbyist. And eh, I don't think so. And it's not really up my alley. So I decided to go back to Detroit. Uh, got hired by Burroughs Corporation to sell computers. And it, it's kind of funny because, you know, if you look at a desk today, that was the size of the computers we were selling. And all it was was one gigantic keyboard the size of that friggin' desk, a punch tape, and the platen, which is what, you know, like a typewriter or the roller thing, was up there. And all you do is punch into this machine, you develop a punch tape, and that was a computer that was 7000 bucks Back then, I figure 1974, I graduated. I know it's graduate. I just like call it graduate. It didn't compute much at the time. It, it didn't. No computing. It's 2K a memory. So you go to work for Burroughs, but you got a little burning desire to follow your passion. I heard about um, a national rep from a friend. Explain what a national rep is. Oh, national rep. Uh, what it is is that um, at that time, agencies were based in cities. So went back to Detroit. In Detroit, he had all the automotive companies were based there. GM products, all the Ford products, all the Chrysler products were all at their agencies in Detroit. And so when they wanted to buy outside of the Detroit area, they use national reps because these people have never been there. I mean, you're not going to call up 25 radio stations to figure out the rate is, how many TV stations. And so they would go to the national rep and you would sell stations across the United States in every place but your home market and maybe even your home state. And so that was called a national rep. And it was a very vibrant business and you know, in Detroit, because you had the automotive companies, Kmart was based there at that time too. So you had some huge companies based in Detroit area. And when I sold computers, you know, I'm not a black and white kind of guy, as you probably know. I think I'm a little off kilter sometimes. But I would do these big presentations and I would I had flipboards that were funny, uh, humorous things regarding computers. Pre-PowerPoint. Yeah, wait pre-power, but this is flip paper, right? So I brought those in to the manager of the office. I interviewed for a couple of different companies. And for some reason, a company named Cats Radio just struck me. 
Uh, it just, I like the lady who was a manager there. I met some of the people who were in the office. I liked them all. So when I went into interview, I brought some of my charts in to pitch Joanne. Yeah, because that's what you did. That's what you did. And you figure if you're trying to sell a radio station in Eugene, Oregon, and you're sitting in Detroit, Michigan, the person who's buying that station for that client never been to Eugene, had never heard the radio station, knew nothing about the market. And so how did you pitch it? You had to develop a story. And so it fit because the things I did for computers developed a story about why you need to have this computer, not about here's the price, you can do this for you. I did silly things with it, right? Did Burroughs train you on that skill of storytelling oh, no. presentation no, that I, you came up on your own? That was yeah, my, my Polish brain. <laughs> How do I best do this? <laughs> so um, it took about six months of bugging her to death, and she finally hired me. You took six months to get the job in radio? Yeah, because, I mean, they're going like, this guy's a freaking idiot. I mean, seriously. <laughs> so, and they didn't really need anybody at that time, and then somebody left, and that's how I got the opportunity. That's where persistence comes in. Yeah. And so then, you know, I got moved out to L.A. to run that office out there. So how old were you when you moved to L.A.? Would have been 1979. So I was uh, 28 years old. Good time to be in L.A. Great time to be in L.A. And talk about a little bit of uh, managing the rep office in L.A. It was a different way of doing things, to say the least. Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, one of the big accounts out there was Photoshop. Remember they used to have those yeah. freestanding units? And you were given a day, however much time you needed to pitch your stations. So given CATS, we had 400 some odd radio stations or stations across the market. And so, you know, we had a, a, like two days to pitch all our stations. So the guy that was handling the account, you know, it's getting to be like maybe a week away from when we have to go down there. And I knew we still had people to contact because you're sitting in L.A., unless you're getting up at 6 30 7 o'clock in the office you're getting a hard time getting a hold of the east coast mm -hmm. so i always made it a point to get in there because i talked to new york anyway so i got in at seven o'clock every day and so anyway i know this guy is a little short on getting markets completed and so i walk into his office one day it's like maybe 10 o'clock and he's sitting there reading a magazine and i said what are you doing and he goes well it's break time it's 10 o'clock <laughs> I'm thinking break time. <laughs> you just broke yourself, brother. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. So we got through that um, little situation. And right after we finished the Photoshop for that particular year, Les decided he should get another job. Mm -hmm. But that's the way the office was. It was real laid back, lazy fair. And as you know, there were uh, RER reports that you got from your rep firm. And that would also rank the rep in terms of revenue. And Katz, who was number one in every single city they were in, uh, was number four in L.A. And L.A. is a major media market. Yeah, and being number kinda, four, yeah. It's kind of strange that that would happen. Yeah. And it's not like the stations were different, the same stations everybody else had to sell. And so um, in six months, I had gotten rid of all the salespeople in the office, uh, either by choice or my choice. And I hired a whole new group of guys, people, actually men and women, who were just as crazy as you can get. And that was a heyday of radio, too, oh, to a great degree. unbelievable. Yeah. We had station guys coming in. The station guy was the general manager or sales manager from the station. And, you know, we had people coming in four days a week. And you would take them on on sales calls at all these different agencies so they could pitch their market. But the beauty is that, you know, as I said to you, with the creativity side is that the buyers who were buying these markets had never heard these radio stations. And so you always had to develop a story. And it didn't matter what the market was, 
you knew a story about that radio station. So at a moment's notice, you can come up with some kind of a uh, situation where it fits that client. So storytelling was very important. Oh, extremely important. In fact, there was one when I was selling in Detroit, and uh, they had hired a replacement for me. And so I had to take him around in my agencies, and, and the guy was very savvy. We had to go in and pitch uh, Kmart, and I had to call eight buyers who were there, present the radio stations, and I saved the media director for the last one. And I said to Mike, I said, now pay attention to how I pitched WMAR in Baltimore, which is a low-ranked station, never got a buy on Kmart. I go through all the buyers, pitch them all, go into Linda's office, and I pitch all the markets, and I go, okay, now Baltimore. And WCBM was the other station we had, which was a news talk station, big ratings at that time. So that was easy, right? Relatively easy. I winked at Mike. I walked over to her desk, put the proposal down on her desk, fell to my knees and said, oh, Linda, <laughs> please buy this radio station. Please buy it. One time, please buy it. And she bought it. But it was just being stupid. I mean, sometimes it works. But also you had a relationship with her. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. She knew your style and she knew that you're reliable and, and probably got a good enough chuckle and said, what exactly the hell? It. I'll buy the station. Just get up. <laughs> so you're in radio rep for him, but you also had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug. One of the guys who's GM of um, the stations we had in Fresno, um, Joe had broken off, decided to leave radio and it with a company called the Research Group, which at that time was the biggest uh, research company. And Joe is very successful doing that. You would do or sell perceptual studies. So you look at the market, where's the best fit, or how do we best position our radio station? You did music testing. And uh, those are the two big areas that you were involved in. And so one day Joe calls up and he says, why don't you come and help me with the research company? And he said, I've got a guy who I always use for my phone company. Why don't three of us get together, start a company? I said, sure, let's do it. So I left Katz, and Joe and I really were the two sales guys. And a guy named John it was in Fresno, and John had a phone company that had 40 people who did nothing but make outbound sales calls. And so he would be our arm to do their actual research, and we would write the perceptual studies or do the music testing so on. And John was also in radio. John is interesting. His background was on air. A big uh, CHR station, top 40 station. Contemporary hit radio. Yeah, CHR Contemporary Hit Radio. And uh, before Rick Dees, which a lot of people know that name. I knew Rick Dees in Memphis. Did you? WHBQ. Well, I started with WMPS, actually. Before Rick went to L.A. to go on KISS, K-I-I-S, John Walker was the morning guy preceding Rick Dees. Don't want to be that guy. <laughs> well, the reason he got off the air is because at that time, payola was a big thing. Well, John got pinched to be a witness for the state, either that or he went to jail. So John decided, hmm, I think I'll just become a witness. It's a good choice. So that's why he got off the radio and ended up in a research company. And Payola was the record companies paying disc jockeys to run a particular record. Put it in a higher spin. Which they sign a contract that says they won't do. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why John got out of it. So anyway, we did that and we were very successful so we developed research programs with them, developed music testing with them, national programs. But you could see the industry was changing dramatically because caller ID came on phones. And as soon as that happened, I said to my partners, we ain't going to be here much longer because everything we did was by phone. And people had to agree to take the test or become part of the study, whatever it might happen to be. Uh, and as soon as you saw that it's going to be an 800 number calling, 
our incidence rate started going down. So, so people just wouldn't answer. Wouldn't answer. So we knew for all the formats in radio, we had an incident rate. Out of 35 calls, we'd get one completed survey on average. That's a lot of calls. A lot of calls. That's why the cost of doing it was high. To do a, a perceptual study in a market like Los Angeles, we charge 50 grand. How many calls would you need for the study to be successful? Uh, you know, Generally, you'd have somewhere between 100 to 500 calls, depending on the size of the market. And you're looking at one in 35. Yeah. So we knew that we'd have to call a lot, and that price of that would go up. But the value of that to a station was there, too. It's a very interesting business um, because you truly learn how you could impact the results of a study. What do you mean by that? It's all based on who you let into screening, how you screen people into the study, and who you let into the study. Could weigh it one way or the other. Yeah. So if you're doing, um, let's say, music tests for a country radio station, which actually were our biggest clients, if you want to get really tight screening, name your top three artists, right? You know, if you don't mention a country artist, we're not going to let you through that study. Mm-hmm. If you just say, do you ever listen to country radio? Yeah, I, every once in a while I listen to it. Well, good, you're in the study. Haven't done it. There's a lot of things I just don't trust because you don't know how they're screening people through. But it was an interesting business. I loved it. It was exciting. And you guys sold the company and you got back into radio. I actually went into a, a newspaper research company, newspaper rep firm, and they had a research division. And so they asked me to come on board to help develop other research programs for them and then move that out into broadcast. They had um, some phenomenal programs and uh, two of them that I th- think we're very successful. We actually sold to other radio stations and TV, as a matter of fact. Uh, one was directed toward the movie industry. And the movie industry at that time had 15 different genres of movies like drama, comedy, all that stuff. And think back to newspapers at that time. The movie section was two or three pages. That was their lifeblood. Yeah, that was a lot of money. So we did all kind of focus groups on you know, who watches these kind of movies. And then we imprinted that back to the marketplace and I actually had access to ticket sales, daily ticket sales through the box office. And so we would go into a releasing company and say, okay, based on past experience, a thriller movie does really well in these marketplaces. The market composition of the people who watch these kind of movies is X. Here's the composition of those people in this particular market or markets. So we would go into the movie company and sell that information. And then our newspaper clients would benefit because they're picking their markets. Uh, the one with um, recruitment was extremely fascinating. What we did was we tied into the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and we did focus groups with people, and we found out that at that time that people would leave their job for an increase of $5,000 or more in pay. So we would first go to the company that's trying to hire somebody, and let's say they're going to hire a, a rad tech, right, radiation technician, and they're going to pay him sixty grand. First of all, we look at that marketplace and based on Bureau of Labor Statistics, how do they stack up and pay versus that market? Are they high or low, right? Then we would say, okay, here's what we have found is that people will move to make X amount of dollars more. And so we would then look at those markets surrounding that area and pick the markets to advertise in who made $5,000 or less because they were good fodder. And so those newspapers and radio, if they decided to do that, or TV, would get the benefit of that advertising too. So it was very fascinating how it all happened. So all this is while you're out west. How do you get to Chattanooga? Well, here's how it happened. So I had a pretty good reputation at CATS. And um, 
kept in contact with all the people there and everything. And one of the guys who was a co-worker of mine uh, eventually elevated up to the president of CATS. And uh, Stewie, he came into Detroit like two months before I went to L.A. And so I knew Stewie's from Chicago. And one day he calls me up and he goes, would you get the F out of radio, <laughs> out of newspaper and come back to radio? And so I started laughing. I go, well, what do you want? Because the newspaper business at that time was waning too. We're talking 2005, which is kind of going downhill. And yeah. um, so I said, sure. And they moved me to Nashville. I oversaw sales for seven markets for them. After, how long did I do that for? I guess four years. Because I was national sales over also. The national business was just drying up. And as you know, it's changed even further from that point. Mm -hmm. And so one of the guys who used to be a client of mine at Katz was one of the three heads of Clear Channel Radio, which is Katz, same parent company. And uh, so Dave called up and said, hey, do you want to run Augusta? And I said, sure, I'd love to. They gave me the Augusta market to run. And then uh, that's 2000, beginning of 2009. And then right around October, he said, hey, we need you to move to Chattanooga and replace the infamous Mark Bash, as you know. Yes, I know Mark. Yeah, so I oversaw both Chattanooga and Augusta. I guess after doing that for about three years, they moved me to be a regional president, oversaw multiple markets for him. And then, like so many jobs in radio, that position across the country got eliminated. And I had a long non-compete and... I just calling up our clients and just saying, hey, I'm no longer with the company. Great company and nothing against them. Please continue advertising with them. And one of the guys that called up is Ben Phillips, who home rate mortgage. And uh, I told Ben, and he says, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I have no freaking idea. I haven't even thought about it. And he said, well, come on in on Monday and talk to me. So he's talking to me about being a mortgage broker. And I thought, well, I got nothing else to do. I got not compete for a while. So I said, that sounds great. Let's do it. I got my mortgage license. But... What was interesting is that their business was dependent upon people calling in. And it still is, like any other mortgage company. But they also realized, and it was pretty easy to see, that there's all this revenue stream out there from realtors. And realtors don't have any particular allegiance to a mortgage company, nor does anybody buying a house. They're just looking for the best rate and service. Yeah. And so the most money sitting out there is go to the realtors. So that's what I did. I started going to the realtors. And so my position became one of marketing for them, and their realtor business went from 29% to over 60% in just under a year. And that's a huge amount of money coming into them, and they did a good job. How did the research company experience really help you see that more clearly than maybe someone else? I think because you look deeper into things. You're analyzing a perceptual study. All oh, you've got a tremendous amount of verbatim responses and one to tens and yes or no's or whatever. And you have to analyze what's the best approach for that station in that market or how do you best position the station or what's the best way to handle the morning show. And so you learn to analyze things. I'm going to go back to what you said about sports. Taught you creativity. Sounds like that was a great example of it. Definitely. Yeah. So you did the mortgage business, but... Radio, still back of your head, and you got back into radio. Yeah, definitely. So Cumulus came after me and said, hey, we have an opening in our stations group here. Uh, so I was with Cumulus for five years, and now I'm officially retired. Yeah, and playing golf. Surprisingly, not as much. It just, I go like, well, I should go hitting balls today. I got stuff to do. Well, you're a busy guy, and we've known each other a little more than a decade, and you've always got something going. 
Definitely. A couple more questions for you, but before I get to that, I just want to remind our listeners, if you've made it this far in the podcast, subscribe. We have interesting conversations with genuine people like Jared. And if you subscribe, just go to your favorite platform, hit that subscribe button and join us on My Morning Cup. It's a, a varied career. What's the big career lesson that if you're sitting down with your son and you say, you know what you need to do to advance your career, what would that be? Believe in yourself. That it's all how you position yourself, how you believe in yourself. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing. That self-confidence. And- yeah, everybody's got great ideas. Just execute, try it. In a bit of a tag on to that, I think most people know that and understand it, but I think we all have a, that doubtful voice in the back of our head, mm-hmm. you know, saying, I, I, I can't do that. <laughs> yep. One similar question, but go back and talk to your 25-year-old self about what's important to a happy life. Wow. First of all, it's a, a happy wife. <laughs> happy wife, happy, happy life. family, but I think you certainly change through your years, through your decades. I think you start off with an idea of what's important to you, and you got to hang on to that because the things that were important to you at age, you know, 23 or whatever, are still important to you for the most part. Uh, they may have taken a, a slightly back step, but uh, it, it comes down to believing in yourself for one. Certainly, finding a tremendous spouse is a wonderful thing, as you know, mm-hmm. and to be able to come home to somebody and just whatever you just, I need to unload or I need to let's go have some fun or whatever it might happen to be. It's realizing that there's more to life and particularly when you have children, that there's more to life than just you. And I think that's the biggest learning experience is that it's not about you anymore. It's about your family, quite frankly. That's a great way to put it. And you know, it's the old get more when you give more. Very true. Well, this has been a great conversation, Jared. I really appreciate you coming in, and I enjoy your company, and I look forward to being with you on the golf course. You got it. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.